what's up everybody? Welcome to another episode of Downtime with Downstar, episode 169. And today we are here with the living legend, Stefan Papadakis. Stefan, what's up, man? What's up? <laughs> Not much, bro. It's uh it's an honor to sit here with you. Uh I wish I wish it was in person, but I'll take this. <laughs> yeah. So um for everybody that's not familiar with you, uh, if they're, um, you know, quarantined under a rock right now, can you just give us a quick breakdown of who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so currently I run a multi-car drift program with uh, Toyota, Rockstar Energy Drink, uh, Nitto Tires, and our drivers are Frederick Osbo, uh, Ryan Turk, and uh, Jonathan Castro out of Dominican Republic. And uh, we build these cars, and we can paint them with all uh, through the whole uh, form of the drift series. Uh, but I've got a long history with uh, import drag racing, um, first with Hondas, uh, front wheel drive, a lot of front wheel drive records. Then we went into rear wheel drive drag racing, uh, transi- transitioned into drift uh, around 2006, and then. Um, we won a few championships with Formula Drift, and I think we're currently the, the like the winningest team in Formula Drift right now. So, nice. yeah, it's a lot of motorsports. And that's um, the that's the Rockstar car, correct? Papadoc is racing. Yeah, so we had a couple of uh, initially. We worked with um, I worked with Tanner Faust, so he's on Top Gear and uh, the Hot Wheels, you know, big jump thing yeah. that they did stunts and stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then. Uh, and then with Frederick Osbo, he's got a lot of wins and a championship as well. So Tanner's got two championships uh, with us, and then and then Frederick Osbo has one. Dude, very cool, man. Yeah. Um, really fun. So starting off in uh, in the Honda community, drag racing, drifting yourself, then moving to a drift team, and uh, now a YouTube star, man. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. it it seems like you're able to uh, transition through all the changes of the automotive community, man. How do you do that? Uh, it's just, you know, I'm passionate about, you know, what what we do. And um, I try to learn as much as possible kind of along the way and try to be a master at whatever it is. So whether it's front-wheel drive drag racing and then later rear-wheel drive drag racing and, uh, and try to combine, you know, the passion for the sport and wanting to compete with understanding that, you know, we have to, you have to pay for it in some way. And we're fortunate to work with some really good companies and we just do our best to continue to promote them and, and, uh, and, you know, have that relationship with, with company, with sponsors and, and, uh, kind of, you know, I, I did the drag racing as the right place at the right time with the front wheel drive drag racing. And that's what the sport was really starting to grow. Um, we had to start off with like battle of the imports and that was a lot of the, uh, real grassroots drag racing. And later on, I was able to transition and build our cars a little bit more extreme for when they did the NHRA sport compact series. Um, after drag racing for about 10 years, I got a little bit sort of maybe burnt out a bit on drag racing for doing it for so long. And then, uh, the drifting stuff was starting to get quite popular around 2003, 2004, so I had my eye looking at that, and then I was doing both the drag racing and the drift. Uh, and then around and in 2006, we decided to kind of retire from drag racing and focus on drift. Um, and then use the same sort of you know build philosophy, try to build the best cars we could, and be as competitive as possible. And 
continue to just represent the team and the companies and everybody that we work with well. And that's just been a good formula. Yeah, definitely, man. I was doing a podcast with uh, Eddie Lee from Titan 7, and uh, your name came up. And he said one thing about you is your preparedness. You're always prepared. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you see that as um, leading to your success in all these different genres that you've been in? Yeah, so I mean, there's a thing with, with motorsports events. like They're going to happen with, whether or not you're done with your car and whether or not you're ready. And I learned that at a pretty early age that, you know, when you're working on your car until two in the morning and you've got to be at the track at seven the next day, uh, that rarely turns into a good experience, yeah. you know, or a good weekend. So uh, not that it can't, yeah. but um, so I kind of try to manage the amount of work we try to do to a manageable amount. And uh, instead of procrastinating and doing that later, we try to do it as soon as possible. And then we'll kind of hit it hard in the beginning and then try to, you know, kind of level it off versus like taking it easy in the beginning and then have to hit it really hard at the end. So it's just a, a you know, a strategy on on when to work and, and know, you know, have a realistic outlook on say, OK, we've got we're trying to achieve this goal with the car to have it you know, finished, obviously. And we have this list of things that we need to do. What are really what should we prioritize and what's the realistic time it's going to take to do all these different things like we're doing something on the engine or whatever. And then because we've been doing this for so many years now, building cars, we've got a good idea of estimating how much time those things can take. And then, uh, you know, and then and then that helps uh, finishing the cars and stuff on time. Yeah, a lot of that just sounds like uh, common sense, but then you just see it so many times at these race events and, you know, even on our side, on the car show events, people are always waiting to the last minute. Do you feel like you're a lot more disciplined than others? It could be, but we have a lot of resources as well. You know, I've been doing this for so many years. I've got a lot of good friends that I can call for help if we need it or making some parts or... Um, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's, you know, being realistic. Like I really would like to build this on the car, but you know, the, if we don't finish it, then the car won't be finished. Mm. And the likelihood of finishing this is like 50, 50, right? So maybe we don't try that. Maybe we just go a more conservative route and yeah. So it, it, sometimes it's just, uh, choosing your battles. Right. Yeah. So you choose the battles and and uh, and you hopefully win more of them. And because the whole the really the goal is to, to finish a car and go out to an event and be competitive as you can. But if you don't finish the car, then you never even get an opportunity to do that. Yeah. So it's like try to finish it to some point and then evolve it over the events throughout the year versus try to hit the first event with every the whole wish list done. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you on that, man. So. Coming from the, the Honda community, like I said, and then the drifting and, um, you know, everything else that you dabble in. Now you're doing the uh, the the Supra series on YouTube. You're building the 1,000 horsepower Supra. These are all a bunch of different communities inside of the automotive, the tuner community as a whole. Where, where do you see your passion line towards is it more of a competition uh doing something that's never been done or what what do you feel that draws you towards these uh these different areas in the communities yeah uh i like building stuff that hasn't been built before 
and I like it to be in some sort of competition because then you can see if you did a good job with that build, right? Yeah. So, so the car show, you know, I mean, it's the same with a lot of different things. So, um, and I like that that cyclical sort of like in the winter we'll build something and then in the spring we start having events and then maybe we'll travel from April until, you know, October or November doing those events. And then we don't have to travel that much through the winter. And then we'll spend time in the shop and, and build another car or do rebuilds and things like that. So it keeps it kind of fresh versus traveling all the time for work or building cars all the time and a new car every month yeah. um, or every couple of months. Uh, I like the, you know, sometimes it's building and sometimes it's competing aspect of it. Got you. Yeah. Got you. So let's let's go ahead and take it way back to yeah. um what when you got your first Civic. What year was this and how old were you? So I turned sixteen in nineteen ninety two. Okay. And uh I got a ninety one Civic SI, a couple year old car. Uh was my first car. Oh wow. Yeah. And um and the car I wanted was like a Mustang or a Camaro or something, yeah. but like that wasn't going to happen in my house. And a Honda Civic seemed like a pretty good starter car, right? Used car, you know, really relatively economical, known to be relatively safe, insurance not too much. Um, but little did my mom know like that people were modifying these cars and street racing yeah. them. Yeah. So did you know that already? Did you know that there was a culture for it? I did for sure. So I was really into RC cars when I was like 12, 13, 14. And some of those guys uh, that were also into RC cars were older and drove. And some of them had like hot rods and stuff, but a couple of them had, one of them had like a CRX and another guy had a, a Volkswagen Bug that was all modified. Another guy with a Civic. And then, so when I learned that, you know, I thought that there was just race cars that they modified, people modified, or that was like the custom cars were only race cars. But when I learned, oh, you can modify your street car and even do stuff with it, yeah. like the canyons and things like that, then I didn't care about RC cars anymore. I only care, cared about uh, real cars. And um, I fortunately had a, a group of friends that knew how to work on the car as well. And we didn't have a bunch of money and, and there really weren't that many shops to go to to have the cars modified. So yeah. you had to figure out how to do it yourself. So, you know, made friends in the community and then so we'd work on the cars together. Like the first week I had that car, drove it to my buddy's house and we pulled the suspension off or the shocks and springs off and cut the spring coils and lowered the car essentially for free. Yeah. Right. I started learning how to work on the car and it kind of kept going from there. So the car was a 92? 91. 91. And this was yeah. 92. Yeah. So, oh, so yeah. one year old car. Yeah, I mean, it was probably, you know, 91 model year. I think the guy I bought it from probably bought it in like the end of 1990. Yeah. You know? But yeah, yeah, year or two old car. Um, and uh, yeah, it started, that was my, that was my, that was my street car. Now, what was your, uh, your family saying about that, that you started modding this brand new car that they just got you? Yeah, so um I don't, I, I think my mom was just happy that I had some sort of passion and, uh, you know, I was always into the car and reading car magazines and, you know, I go into like friends houses and hanging out talking about cars. Like it wasn't, 
it wasn't drugs or alcohol yeah. or like getting into trouble really there. Um, so I, and, and it was something mechanical. I was always in mechanical stuff. So I think she thought it was okay yeah. until I started getting a bunch of speeding tickets and fix it tickets and all that kind of stuff. And then it became, uh, a little bit, you know, like what's, what's really going on here? Yeah. 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 So when did you start, um, like knowing that there was more people than the group of guys that you would hang out with? And then, uh, when did, uh, your name start growing on the streets? Yeah, so I would go to the street races with them, or there'd be like the car meetups. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it had nothing to do with street races. It'd be like a like a the Friday night yeah. car show thing at like the Ranch Ninety Nine Market in the parking lot for the business that was closed. So we just go there and we kind of cruise in and check out the different cars and um, uh, you know not for for years. Like I started having uh, a little bit of a car crew, and they were modifying their cars and so i wanted to go a little bit faster and i lived in huntington beach and nitrous oxide systems nos mm -hmm. was like 20 minutes from my house oh wow and i was like oh i think i can you know that seemed like something that could make the car a lot faster so i went over there and met the guy at the desk and just started talking to him about the little different kits that they had and then so eventually got a kit and put that on my car it's like a 50 or 60 horsepower nitrous kit and that was like now all of a sudden the car ripped. Yeah. Now the car the car was super fast. Uh, so I started racing people uh, with that setup. And then soon after, you know, before, like around 17 or 18 years old, they opened up uh, Terminal Island Raceway in Long Beach. Okay. And there was like these older street racing guys and they were trying to get people off the streets and onto like legal racing. So they were able to build a like a makeshift quarter mile racetrack, but with real timers and stuff. Mm -hmm in Long Beach. So that was only, you know, 35 minutes from my house. So now I was able to go to the track and get like real times on the car. Yeah. Not just, you know, racing people on the street. And then I could modify the car and try different launches and, and then really work on making the car like actually quicker, like with an actual tangible, <clears throat> like a tangible time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, that was, um, that was really fun, and I just kind of, kind of kept going from there. Like, I'd break an axle in the car and have to fix that, or break the clutch and then upgrade it. So it kind of kept evolving the car over the years, um, and the whole sport started really evolving too. So it wasn't just me. Like, there was a lot of other guys with Hondas and turbocharged Hondas and Integra motors in their Hondas, and uh, I really knew that like that's kind of what I wanted to do. I want to be a race car driver, um, and. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that this was my race car that I had and I had to learn how to drive it better and how, learn how to work on it. Um, when I graduated high school, I wanted to, uh, there wasn't like a school on how to do that. Yeah. So right after high school, I worked for a place called JG Engine Dynamics and they built uh, like race engines and stuff for like to tuner cars. Mm -hmm. And so started off there just sweeping the floors and then eventually answering the phones and uh, I'd work on my car there sometimes and just kind of kept the, the sport again, kept going. Like now there were more, uh, a bit bigger, larger sport compact events or import car events. Yeah. So I ended up switching my engine to a Integra 1.8 liter engine and then turbocharging it and taking it instead of a street car, made it into a race car. And then I was like carpooling with my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> so I just like everything was towards whatever I can do to 
make this car as competitive as possible. And it just kind of continued. After working for about two and a half years at that the place, GAG Engine Dynamics, my buddy and I started a, 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 a tuner shop where we did engine swaps. Okay. So it was a place called Honda Pro. And what we did was we took uh, specialists in, in putting Integra engines and Civics and CRXs, like the bigger Honda Prelude motors into Integras and Civics. And then we knew how to do the engine mounts and the axles and the wiring. And uh, we were kind of the place to go in uh, Southern California because we knew how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then all along, I was still racing my car and, and building that one up more. Um, and around 2000, or sorry, 1998, um, met um, a buddy, late friend, he's no longer with us, but uh, Sean Carlson. And uh, I built, I had this really powerful uh, Honda Prelude engine turbocharged, but my 91 Civic now with so many years of racing on it was all super worn out. So uh, he built a chassis, which was this 97 uh, Honda EK chassis Civic. And then we used my engine and, and uh, transmission in it. And then we ended up, you know, breaking into the nine second quarter mile. And then later on into the eight second quarter mile with that car and was uh, like the quickest and fastest front wheel drive drag racing car for many years. And this was right at the time when, you know, the magazine started coming out like Super Street Magazine and Turbo Magazine and Import Tuner and Modified. And there's all these different like endemic or tuner magazines and they were, you know, the often they'd be at these events and we would be competing and winning at these events. Uh, and so we got a lot of notoriety through the magazine scene. Yeah. And also that's about the time that, you know, soon after like DVDs started coming out and they started having, you know, import sport compact sort of DVDs with events and stuff on it. So we we're being profiled there. And, uh, around 2000, what are we into? Like 2000, two or so 2001 i had to decide like do i want to have my honda pro shop and the racing or just the racing because kind of i couldn't do both yeah so i was like you know i'm gonna close the shop and really just focus on the racing and see if i can make it work and then uh frank Choi, who ran battle of the imports helped me get my first few sponsors got you and uh just kind of kept evolving from there built another front wheel drive car with honda continue to break records front wheel drive and then we're working with AEM electronics for many years and we all wanted to do like the next level of class, which was real wheel drive, you know, 1600 horsepower twin turbo NSX powered car. So we built like a full tube chassis, uh, real wheel drive car. And we eventually ran into the sixes with that car. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we ran the real wheel drive in 2003, four and five. And then, uh, started getting kind of burnt out and the, 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 Drag racing scene started kind of dropping off a little bit, so then jumped jumped over to drift in 2006. Gotcha. And um, and kind of never really looked back. Like retired from drag racing, and and like we started at the beginning of the show, like we've been really focusing on drift. Yeah. Um, we worked with Toyota now for, geez, we're with Scion since 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when they closed down the Scion brand, we moved over to Toyota and we've been working with Toyota now for, uh, the four or five years. Awesome, man. I, I definitely want to jump into the, uh, into the drift side of things. Cause I know that that's a, that's a big part of your, uh, your history, but, um, I want, I want to get a little more history on the, the Honda side of things. So 
back in the mid 2000s or mid 90s when you're working at JG um who are like the big names in the Honda community who are the guys that you would say uh pioneered it and helped uh set the foundation for guys like myself today yeah so um there's absolutely a generation before me that was racing before I was even 16 years old so that was like the Miles Bautista and like the Ron Bergenholtz and there's other guys that were crossovers from like the, the hot rod scene into like the sport compact. Like there was a guy named Turbo Joe that had a Turbo Pinto. Mm. <laughs> he was like, uh, I think it was like a hot rod guy, but he had this turbo four cylinder Pinto thing, which was closer to the import cars than, than, uh, than the hot rods. And he also had a turbo CRX a really long time ago. And uh, I think there's a junior, I think Asper, yeah. junior, and Archie Madrano and Tony Fuchs and a bunch of guys that were probably, you know, four or five years older than me at least and uh, had the resources and real jobs and stuff yeah. like that. And they were the ones that were down to just take these brand new Honda Civics and CRXs and tear them up and build the engines and turbocharge them and put different aftermarket fuel injection on them. And they were doing, you know, crazy stuff that you're like, you know, how does this even happen? Yeah. And, um, so those are the guys that I would look up to because of the, uh, the speed that they had in their cars and then the, the modifications they, they did to their cars and the know-how. Gotcha. So you would say you're a second generation of the Hanukkah. I mean, say this is, you know, how many generations are there, right? With, with, uh, you know, the hot rodding. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, probably maybe like second or second generation, I guess with the, with the tuner sport compact scene. Good. Cause there were guys in the late eighties that were running like, I don't even know what they were like Celica Supras and, uh, and, um, 86s and I don't even know what they had back then, but they had Scott Kenimura, like there was this, uh, it was like an Asian sort of Japanese, um, Gardena sort of Southern California Long Beach thing. And, uh, I think it's the Asian community. I, I don't know that much about the history. I don't get it wrong, gotcha. but I, I think there was like an Asian community and they kind of had these imported cars and they just decided to modify them and go street race them. And that was like kind of the beginning of this kind of this first generation of import car street racers back then or enthusiasts. But there was also a crossover, like not everybody who went street racing, like they were also into modifying them and, and, uh, putting the tinted windows and lowering them and wheels and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. So what do you think it was that pinpointed it to, to make Hondas and the Honda community stand out from just another import community? Yeah, the, the Honda car itself uh, already had some good power, good transmission, relatively lightweight, and it re responded really well to modifications. So for not a lot of money, you can make the car pretty quick. And I think that was, and it wasn't a very expensive car and it was relatively reliable. So having that package, you're like, well, why would I buy anything else? There's the, the Honda just, you know, is just a relatively inexpensive car that can get me what I want to do yeah. to do what I want to do. Plus in, in Japan, there was a, a, a tuning scene with these cars as well. So we would get like the Option magazine, which was a magazine from from Japan, yeah. or Option Two, and I'd look at all the pictures of the cars that were in uh, that were being built in Japan, and I'd like, oh, I really like that styling. So I'd see like a road race car that had like a black X yeah. on the head, oh, yeah, yeah. 
boat race track and the headlights were glass and they didn't if you know if you hit something they didn't want the glass to end up on the track so they put tape on the headlights so if you know so we do that on our street cars um i think the cars if i remember correctly like some of the cars didn't have orange corner lights in the back they were all red yeah so we'd figure out a way to make them all red and spray paint it or like you know candy them out um you know, Mugen stickers and Japanese writing on the car that we don't even know if it meant. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like it felt well, authentically JDM. It felt right. <laughs> so, did so, have you been to Japan? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I went several times, probably five or six times at least during uh, around 2000 to like 2007 or so. To I used to, I used to go annually to the um, Tokyo Auto Salon. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we actually had, uh, my 90, uh, 97, the EK tube chassis civic went to Japan for the Tokyo auto salon oh, for one wow. year in the ready booth. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, yeah. spent a bit of time out there for sure. What was that like having the car at auto salon? Yeah, that was neat. It was, uh, we had to figure it out on how to get the car out there cause it takes several weeks to ship it out there in a container. Uh, so we had to do it in between. A, fortunately, that event's in January. Yeah. So we could figure out how to do it and still not miss any events. But that was really cool to, to you know, be a guest at a big centerpiece booth like at Greddy Trust's, yeah. at Trust's booth in the Tokyo Auto Salon and being the, uh, um, like, an ambassador for America in a way and, and what we were doing at the drag racing. So that was that was really exciting. Yeah, for sure. In in Japan, um, your first time going there, were you uh, were you surprised at the cars you've seen, or was it just like everything in the magazine? We were shot. I mean, it was you know because back then it's before internet. Yeah. Right. So, and the only thing we saw was stuff in the magazine, and 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 you'd go. So we got off the airplane, and we're in the taxi or on the train or whatever, and we're looking out the window. We're like. Oh my God! There's a skyline, <laughs> or there's a you know, and, and you're just kind of tripping out because they're all right-hand drive, yeah. and uh, you start seeing something modified or like these little K cars. Yeah, it was just it was a culture shock on how different everything was uh, from the U.S. Um, and so that was just in the street. And then when we went to the Tokyo Auto Salon for the first time, like we had a lot of fun just looking in the parking lot. Yeah, checking out the people's cars. And then uh, at the event, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is this is a real industry making real hardcore parts for these cars that are really well engineered. Because at the time in the US, the the import cars or the sport compact thing was just sort of like this afterthought for a lot of companies. They were focused on Mustang parts and Camaros and you know things like that. Uh, but there weren't a lot of really like high quality, nice parts being made in the US. If they were nice, they're generally being imported from Japan. Mm -hmm. So then when we're in Tokyo Auto Salon looking at the cars in these booths and the parts that they had, we're like, you, so you look at like a, a Skyline, an R32 Skyline, and they have everything from, you know, obviously the obvious stuff like exhaust and intake and, and suspension and stuff, but they had all these hardcore crankshafts and rods and pistons and cams and valve springs yeah. and different valve covers and all, different headlights and taillights and all. You can modify almost everything on the car. And it was... It was like a dream to be able to have that that uh, that ability to do that to your car in the U.S. Yeah. 
but it was interesting like the, the cars that they had all of these parts for were typically parts that or cars that we didn't have in the US um, or cars that I couldn't afford yeah right yeah, yeah. like it'd be like a FD RX7 and I didn't have a you know high dollar car like that um, and even if I did I didn't have money to, to get those parts um, so that was really fun to see all of the the engineered parts and the aftermarket parts that they had for the the JDM cars. Yeah, and man, I could definitely relate. Uh, going to AutoSalon, it's 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 mind blowing and it's uh, it's motivating as well. The the attention to detail that they spend on the cars and just um, the stuff that they focus on versus say if you would go to like a SEMA, you know, um, it's. And then the parking lot as well, like you said, you know, a lot of people that I know, they'll spend half a day just in the parking lot, just walking the parking lot is definitely an experience for sure. Yeah. And that was thing that was probably in the heyday, yeah. you know, when Japan economy was doing really well around that time in 2001, 2003. Um, and it was just, everything was really strong. So, uh, that might've been when everything was sort of peaking. Yeah. <laughs> So I was listening to uh, one of the podcasts that you did previously, and you told the story about how you started working at uh, JG. Um, I want to see if you could tell us that, because there's a lot of people that want to know how you got to that position, how this person did that, how they did this. And the answer is really simple. you know. So if, if you can go over that and let us know how that ended up starting where you are at today. Sure. Yeah, I get asked a lot, like, you know, how do you get into the industry? How do you do this or that? And and um, and there isn't really a silver bullet. It's, uh, you know, they want to know what school to go to or, you know, what track. And, and all I can say is, well, I can tell you my story. And it's similar to a lot of other friends that work in the industry. And that typically goes, uh, I have my own car. And it's my own project car, and I didn't have much money to spend other people on other people for them to work on it. But I had my community, my friends, and we learned how to work on it, making mistakes or whatever. And I was young enough to it not be, you know, I could still make it to work. And I didn't have a wife and a kid and stuff like that that I had these responsibilities. So um, learned to work on my own car bef well before I worked on anybody else's mm -hmm. car. Uh, or maybe I worked on somebody else's car, but it was their car and I'm maybe helping them holding tools gotcha. or we'd work on something together and we'd kind of learn together. Uh, after that, you know, and after high school, I started working at JG Dynamics, and I just sort of, I was, I was a customer of theirs at first, uh, but I just kind of kept hanging out there. I was the kid that always kind of hung out and I was there so much like, and I'm always, I'm a little bit of a clean freak and <laughs> they kind of had stuff that was like dirty and it's like a normal, it's like a kind of automotive shop, sort of engine building shop. Uh, and I'd started like sweeping up and like cleaning the doors and like all these different things. And just cause it kind of bothered me. And I was like, if I'm there, I might as well do something. Yeah. So, um, the idea was I'm trying to be there to try to learn as much as I can. Uh, but I figured they might as well help out. And and then so fortunately, they never kicked me out. But what ended up happening was I was helping out around for free. And eventually, you know, they kind of kept building the business. And they said, OK, maybe we'll hire him to just, you know, help out and answer the phone. Yeah. So then that's kind of what I helped. I was answering the phone and then cleaning up a bit and then started like talking to customers and doing sales. And because I understood the product and understood the customer because I was a customer. Yeah. Then I relate to the people that were calling 
and I knew the product line. So then all of a sudden I turned into a sales guy and, uh, um, and in parallel, I was still always working on my car and bringing it to the events and, and learning to do it like, you know, learning to continue to wrench. And eventually I started rebuilding the engine and I had the resources now at, at, at JG to, to work on the car there mm-hmm. or to work on the engine there. And, uh, and it just kind of kept going from there. And once, once I realized, okay, maybe I don't want to work here forever. Mm-hmm. You know, I've kind of maxed out what I want to do here. I don't want to be the guy porting the cylinder heads and stuff. I want to keep going racing. Um, and that's when my friend and I decided to open up a shop, uh, tuning the cars. Cause we knew enough that at that point that we could do these engine swaps and everything. And the scene was building enough to where there was enough people that wanted these engine swaps or needed their modified car repaired, like a clutch or transmission that didn't want to bring it to a general repair yeah. place. They wanted dudes that knew how to work on lowered cars to work on their car. Uh, so there was a clientele that was, you know, um, so we leased a shop. I think I don't remember how big the shop was, maybe 1,200 square foot shop. We fit like four or five cars in there. Yeah. And um, I mean, we couldn't work on all four or five at once, you know, maybe two cars at once. But at night we could fit four cars in there. And we had basic tools like we it was an automotive shop. It already had a lift. And we leased the place. We had our hand tools, and uh, and we just kind of started there. We had one customer, and then we make a little bit of money there. Put that money back into you know maybe some more tools and stuff. Had my my uh, my uh, weekly dues I paid with the Snap-on truck yeah, guy yeah. for for the tools, and uh, you know some of the cars we built, including mine, were in the magazines, and just kind of you know the next two or three years kept building that business. Um, at the same time that the whole scene was growing and, and always trying to learn more. Yeah. Right. So I, and I was uh, some submersed in the industry. So obviously we were doing stuff at the shop, but even after the shop, I'd go to Mike, hang out with my other friends that worked at a different shop yeah. and we'd talk about the different, you know, different swaps that we were doing. So there's that community. And then I was all, I've always been into to reading. So if I didn't know how to do something, I'd find whatever book I could on it. So when you're working on, these Hondas back then, there wasn't an instruction on how to, there were instructions on how to work on it. It was the service manual. Mm, okay. And back then, it was like a telephone book sized yeah. service manual that showed step by step how to work on the entire car. It's an amazing, I, that's where I learned how to work on cars essentially was the right way to work on cars was from the service manual. And, um, and building the engines and what tolerances to use. Uh, and so I'd, I'd read the service manual and say, okay, I need this tool so I can measure the engine in this way or so I could, you know, work on this axle boot clamp or whatever it is. Gotcha. And then so I'd try to find that tool and then buy it. And then now I had that capability to do that thing. And eventually, uh, when we doing the, doing the engine swaps, like from a, let's say we had a CRX and an Integra engine into it mm-hmm. and we had to make the ECU work. So I'd say, okay, well, we've got the CCU, so let me open up the wiring diagram for the CCU, and then let me w- open up the wiring diagram in the, in the, the CRX service manual, to, and then I'd graph the two wiring together and yeah. do a bunch of button connectors. <laughs> so I had these like paper-made lists, like, okay, plug A1 from this ECU, I cut that, and then that's going to go to plug yeah. B number three, and then I'll put that together. So one at a time... I'd sort of figure out where the cro- like the same injector one is on this ECU as this, and so I could graph the two harnesses together. Um, 
and the, the, I wasn't the only one doing that, right? Like that was sort of like what you did. Yeah. But there was you know only a handful of, of dudes doing that. Um, and I think when you don't have like nowadays you go on YouTube and, and don't get me wrong, I learn a lot of stuff on YouTube, but but nowadays it's like you go on YouTube and it's like, okay, you do this and then you do this and then you do this and you do this and you kind of you can copycat what they're doing. Yeah. You learn you do learn from doing that. But back when we were doing it, it was like, okay, you've got this thing and this engine, you need to make it run in this car, and no one's ever really done this before, <laughs> or the dude has done it. Like he's not going to tell you how he did it yeah. because that's his business, right? So you just got to sit down and start figuring it out. And um, and I think going through that process of just figuring it out and making a mistake and staying up late and then oh, I didn't finish it tonight and then going to sleep and waking up early and being really motivated and going back in and trying to figure it out the next day. Like going through that whole process creates uh, – an ex- experience yeah. like that's where experience comes from right um and 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 uh in and I, I did a lot of that stuff when i was really young and really motivated and, and had a ton of time to do it had all the time in the world to do it yeah right uh so that's it, uh and then so i guess i think it's the right place at the right time as the whole industry was coming up and then just really immerse myself into that and and just didn't I just blinders on like all I care about is building cool cars and making sure that the customers are happy and also working on my race car and making sure that that's successful and trying to win races and doing whatever I could to have success at each one of those. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors and we'll be back in one minute. We all know that there's tons of places you can buy your car parts at, but when you really need help, who's in your corner? When you need parts for your Honda, you need to visit HeelToeAuto.com. Since 2002, Heeltoe has built a reputation for service and support. Let me repeat that, guys. Since 2002. It's 2020 right now. That's a long time of experience, man. These social media slingers and copycat web stores can't match Heeltoe's professionalism. Heeltoe even offers a complete OEM store for all your genuine parts needs. Whether it's for show, race, or just a badass daily, remember that HeeltoeAuto.com is in your corner. And guys, if you're on Instagram, make sure you check them out at Hilltoe Automotive. Please, please go to their page right now, add them, and comment that you heard them on Downtime with Downstar podcast. Next up is Downstar. Downstar is the premium leader in dress-up hardware and engine bay accessories. We have all the nuts and bolts for all your screwing and nutting needs. From engine kits, transmission kits, mount kits, clutch lines, brake kits, t-shirts, skateboards, hats lighters damn we got it all we we actually have too much guys so if you can please come over and buy some stuff at downstarring.com or check us out at instagram at downstar make sure you give us a follow now back to the show awesome man you can tell from your videos that that you're very detailed in everything that you do and it it really shows that you like to explain things i was watching uh, some of your recent videos that you did and you actually break down what this does why this does this why this is here and have you always felt like you were you were willing to give information to people and help them along uh with whatever they're doing yeah, I think, you know, you get flattered when somebody asks you, you know, how to do something. Yeah. 
And I always hated it when I'd ask somebody how to do something and they would just kind of hold their cars close to their chest and like, ah, nah, that's my thing. It's like, F you, man. <laughs> like, you you can go die in your grave with all the stuff that you know and no one, like, whatever, man. Yeah. And I, I when I would meet people that would, you know, I'd have like older guys that were like a father figure and like, okay, look, man, this is how you do it and this is like the shortcut or you've been doing this kind of wrong and this is why. Yeah. You know, it's like teach a man to fish and then he can, you know, eat forever. So I really appreciated when people did that for me. And it just felt like it brought those people to even a higher level. And the guys that would hide the information were just lower level for me. Ah. So I never aspired to be the guy or the person that would keep, in, you know, secret information. Um, and not to say that we don't have secret sauces no, that are very detail oriented in what we do. But for the general stuff that we're talking about, like uh, I, I, I look fundamentally, I like to go out and learn new things. And back when I was learning, it was friends and maybe you had to figure it out once in a while you had someone that would tell you some secrets. Nowadays, if I want to learn how to, use like a lathe or a, a mill or, you know, a video camera yeah. or even how to use Skype, right? Or whatever, yeah. you know, um, you can go on YouTube and it, I really appreciate when people will build those videos. And I'm like, well, I think that's maybe something missing from our scene is someone that uh, knows what they're doing and is teaching it. The problem that I found before was it's like you got a lot of people kind of teaching it, but it's a lot of misinformation that may not be necessarily the right way to do it. So um, uh, the, the motivation was to try to, you know, share the knowledge that we have and continue to get people into interested in cars and, and have success, have a successful time working on their their cars to hopefully bring up the entire industry, yeah. right? Because you keep hearing about, you know, kids are not into cars anymore and it's about video games and all these other things. And and uh, and I'm like, well, what what can I do to help people, you know, be into cars and help our industry and and uh, get people inspired, you know? And it's and just share, share information and try to teach as much as possible and hopefully help everybody in the community. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um... I know a lot of younger kids that they are, could be into cars, but they can get turned off really quickly from, you know, a bad comment or them asking somebody that they look up to and that person, you know, shitting on them just because they, they, they're nobody or they don't have any following or anything like that. Now, to see somebody like yourself, somebody that's been in the community so long, an OG, and willing to give that that information and to translate it into what the the new generation is able to receive, that's, that's a big help. And, and man, you could be doing things right now that is gonna help somebody, you know, further their career in 10, 20 years, you know, from the information that, that you're putting out now. And I, I wish that a lot of the the OGs would see things like that and embrace the newer generation and, and realize that, you know, that you were in that position at one time in your life. And there was maybe, maybe if somebody would have turned you away, Hey, you got to get out of the shop. Maybe you wouldn't be in this position that you're in today, you know? Right. And you know, but I, I think the driving point has always been, I like, I want to drive my car fast. I like working on stuff. And, uh, 
I like hanging out with people that have similar interests. Yeah. And uh, it, it uh, yeah, and and so it's it's the automotive auto aftermarket, the, the tuner scene or whatever you call this, the racing industry, is really fun because it's filled with a lot of really passionate people. None of us are here for money or fame or whatever. Like it's about going fast and you know building really cool stuff. Yeah. And uh, if some of those other things come along with it, um, that's great. But I mean, if you're really trying to make a lot of money or become really famous, I think there's other industries that you can be make a lot more money and yeah, be a lot more famous definitely. Uh, in. Um, but uh, but those don't necessarily have a lot of you know passionate people. Yeah. Uh, that just really love to wake up in the morning and go to do the job that they do, right? Mm-hmm. And every day I'm talking to guys that that that. And girls that they they love doing their what they're doing. I mean, you're doing your you do you you're doing your podcast, you do your Instagram live stuff, and um, I'm sure you can't wait, you know, to keep on doing yeah. these. And it's it's a fun deal. Yeah. yeah, no, I I definitely love it, man. Um, you know, you touched on something that you say you like to go fast. Let's take it back to the late '90s when there's the chase for the nines. How big of a deal was that back then? And and uh, what what was that like? So the nines was just another barrier in the chase for something. So it was the chase for the 13s and then the 12s and then the 11s and then the 10s. Yeah. And every kind of every year there was another second coming off front wheel drive drag racing. And I remember, uh, I think it was like Junior and then another guy like Archie and then maybe Miles Bautista got into 11s and then Dave She got into the 10s. And, uh, and by the time they got into the 10s, and it's interesting, like every kind of every time that there was another barrier, there was these theories on well, front wheel drive drag cars just there was a barrier. Yeah. You can't go any quicker than this because front wheel drive, like you have a certain amount of acceleration and the weight transfers to the rear and then it comes off the front, and you're ultimately limited by the amount of acceleration because the front tires will just the front the, the wheel car the vehicle will just transfer so much weight off of the front tire that the grip will continue to decrease mm. and you just can't accelerate any faster. Like there's a barrier and it's interesting cause it was totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sure at some academic level it may be true, but, uh, we were not even close to that, yeah. <laughs> um, that barrier. And, uh, and yeah, we ran into the, the nines and then the eights and, but the nines thing was such a, it was weird as like, the 11s and 12s and and, and uh, the 10s happened relatively quick. And the 9s did happen, rel- you know, it took a couple of years before we were able to run into the 9s. But something about like the single digits, like running into the 9s was the something that front wheel drive cars should never be able to do. And even real wheel drive cars had a trouble getting into 9s. Yeah. And in the NHRA world, when you run into nines, you have to have like a parachute and you have to have a different kind of roll cage and safety stuff. And um, it was like not just a barrier as far as a number, but all of a sudden now the car has to be like this crazy race car thing because of safety. And uh, it just really it was like if somebody runs into the nines that it really meant that you did something really special, I guess. Gotcha. Because so many things had to come together. Uh, and it's interesting because, yeah, and then once we did that, uh, I, you know, you kind of 
you know, can look back at times in my career. And I guess that was a moment that it really kind of like need up yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and it was, it was kind of the, 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 the right success at the right time when everybody was really paying attention. Um, and then I had a good group of friends like Sean and, and, uh, and some of the guys we were working with that we just were, we were able to take advantage of it, you know, and, yeah. and not take advantage of it, but like utilize that opportunity. Yeah, no, definitely. Right. Yeah. And not, yeah. So, so you yeah. guys, uh, what was the, the motivation to build the tube, uh, the tube chassis EK? Was that to your way of getting into the nines? Did, was that the way you thought was going to get you there? So in my 91 Civic with the Prelude engine, turbocharged, okay. I had run 10.64 at I think at 136 miles an hour. And I think, I don't remember exactly what the car weighed with me in it, maybe 2,100 pounds or something like that, or 2,000 pounds. And, uh, but the chassis was super old and I had cut a bunch of it to fit the Prelude engine in there and the car was kind of falling apart and looked really terrible. Yeah. Because all I cared about and really had money for was build the engine and get the thing to the track, right? It wasn't always – I didn't have money to put a nice paint job on there and put a body kit and yeah. trick wheel and everything. It was just performance-based. That's where all my money and time went. And uh, Sean was like, look, man, we got to make this car look a little better. And, and he wanted to work with somebody that he could apply some of his fabrication skills. Mm -hmm. And like same thing with me. He was passionate and wanted to build something, but see it go down the track and see it do something. And because he didn't have drag race cars and he wasn't really into building engines, he was like, all right, well you do the engine side and the electronics and the tuning, and then I'll do the fabrication and it'll be a great partnership. And then we'll try to you know make this car really quick. So we modified the 91 Civic and did a tube chassis only in the front. Mm, okay. And we ran it and it wasn't that much faster and we realized we really need to get a lot of weight off the car, a lot of weight off the back of the car, because we're just dragging that thing down the drag strip. So we made another plan to tube chassis the rest of the car, the whole back of it. And then we had another discussion about, man, if we're doing all of this work, why would we just put this old 91 Civic shell on it if we want to try to like get notoriety mm. and maybe get sponsors and things like that? Maybe we should be in the newest car. Yeah. And so we finished the whole tube chassis. And then we got body panels from a uh, uh, from the Honda dealership, just ninety or ninety seven Civic EK replacement roof and oh quarter panels. God. Like when these cars get in in, in accidents, yeah. body shop can order like an entire rear quarter panel yeah. and a door skin and a roof. Like you can order that stuff from the dealership. And we realized we found out that you can do that. And we're like, we don't have to buy a car and tear it down. We'll just buy the panels that we want and and put them on our tube chassis. Yeah. So we spent a few thousand dollars on those panels, and then uh, we, we all of a sudden we had a '97 Civic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so finished that car, and um, and it was everything we wanted. It was uh, really really lightweight. I think it was 1,650 pounds with me in it. Oh wow! Yeah, and, and really in the front wheel drive, any weight behind our theory was any any weight behind the axle or the driver is you're just dragging that along. So light as possible. Um, and if you have any weight, you want it up on front, top of the front tires, cause that's, uh, you know, pushing the front tires down into the ground. Yeah. So, um, the combination of the horsepower that we we're already making about 650 and the really light weight, and then this new tube chassis, we were able to put a pretty big front tire on it. 
it just translated into quicker acceleration and higher top speed, and we were able to get into the nines. And you debuted this at SEMA? We debuted it at I'm trying to think if we brought it to Battle of the Imports or SEMA first. Um, I I think it was SEMA, if I'm not mistaken, because we just had Ron uh, on an episode a couple ago, and he was saying that that was the the big word that when it was at SEMA, then uh, that's when you debuted the car and everybody seen it. And uh, they knew you were out for blood. <laughs> uh, that could be it. Yeah. And I made a really big splash in SEMA that year. And I think a few weeks later was the Bow the Imports or so. So we finished the car up and then uh, and then we ran into Bow the Imports. Um, and the car was at SEMA was in the Battle of the Imports SEMA booth. Oh, okay. Got you. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So he was promoting his brand and his series and trying to get sponsors and stuff for the series. And, uh, and, um, it was a perfect combination. So you hear this a lot with with uh, old drag racing legends and stuff on how they would they were partnering with the promoters of the drag races. Yeah, they would do like match races and stuff like that. So you know where they, they some you know there were the main championship drag racing series, but there were also very successful match racing and like car show and like festival type drag racing events. Yeah. And the promoter would, you know, they'd have a couple of headlining drag races that they'd have, maybe some trick, some bikini model, uh, bikini contest, and um, and some car show. Yeah. So it was a whole festival thing. And Battle of the Imports had that. And then we started going to the Naira events and IVRC. And there was a bunch of different uh, festival type of events uh, that we would we would go to. You know, years later, there was uh, the NHRA series and the Naira series where it was a championship, and we won some of those championships as well. But, uh, yeah, it was mostly just these one-off drag events that were crossed over with the car show and the whole industry tuner scene, import models, that whole thing. Got you. How big of a part do you feel that uh, Frank Choi and Battle of the Imports played on the, uh, the Honda drag racing community? Oh, he's instrumental. Like he was, he's part of that first generation. I think of the street racers personally, and a, a bit of his story was that you know I guess he would. They wanted to. They were going to some of the drag races, and like they weren't even allowed. Like they wouldn't let these mm-hmm. import cars drag race. And he's like, "F this! Like I'm going to do my own event. It'll be just import cars." Yeah. So it was Battle of the Imports, and uh, the guy uh, Bernie that owned and ran launch at Los Angeles County Raceway up in Palmdale. Okay. Track not there anymore, but he's like, man, I don't care what you got. You pay me my, you know, rental <laughs> yeah. fee. You could bring do whatever you want at the track. So you know, Frank Choi turned into a promoter, yeah. and he started the Battle of the Imports, and he had vendors that were like, uh, you know, companies that sold you know parts for the import cars, and then he had like the bracket racing and the heads up racing, all these different things, and it kind of evolved into, you know, uh, an event that he would do two or three times a year at in um, in Palmdale and then he started doing an event in Virginia and some other parts of the U S and then there became other like copycat, you know, import series. Yeah. And then it became like the sport compact series once Ford and GM and Dodge came in and that's when everything really started, you know, blowing up and becoming a really, uh, substantial scene. 
got you. Yeah, he's definitely somebody that I would love to have on the podcast for sure because I hear his name come up all the time. Yeah, he's around. He's here in Los Angeles. He's around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want. I want to see if I can get connected with him for sure, man. Uh, all of this stuff is, is so intriguing to me, man. It's it's these are puzzle puzzle pieces that it's painting the the picture as a whole. So, um, one thing that I want to get into is that everything that I've always seen you do, you've always been very good at marketing. When did you understand um, that you had a skill in marketing and? Um, yeah, well, how did you how did you know at such a young age that you can you can get the sponsors and you can get people to help you and you could work together to build a um a bigger a bigger bigger name for yourself? Yeah, so uh it didn't come naturally. Um it really started with Sean Carlson. So he's like, "Look, man, you can have this fast car, but if it looks like junk, like who's going to want to put their sticker on? You're not you're not representing companies well." And I'd watch him work on something and he'd spend an hour cleaning this little part before he bolted it on. And my old way of thinking was, look, you can sit there and clean that part. It's not making the car go any faster. Yeah. Why would you spend time on that? It's not, there's no tangible reason for it. Like I can spend time on something else that's going to make the car go faster. And uh, that wasn't his point. His point was, look, man, you're going to build this thing and it represents, mm. it represents you and your philosophy on how you build something and whether or not it's fast or not that's good that's fast down the track but if you can also make it look good and show that you have a eye for uh the finer details yeah then um you represent more than just speed mm -hmm. right and and uh it, it, it's still something i i still work on today but I mean, you're, we're, we're, I, I learned this lesson from him back in 1998, right? So I've been working on this for 22 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and that's been a big part of it is, is look, man, if you want to get sponsors and you want to represent companies, then you are representing that company. You essentially work for them. You're an extension of them. Yes. And they need to be proud of how you're representing their company. And uh, that's a serious, that's a big deal, man. There's, there's. They have customers and there's employees there and, and they try to do sales and, and there's a brand image. Like, and if you're going to be part of that, um, you need to represent them well and make sure that you are, you know, being a good person. Yeah. Like it, it's just, you know, just, just be a good dude. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, uh, I'm fine like that. I'm fine with that. You know, I, 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 I can appreciate that because I appreciate it when other people are just good people. Yeah. yeah. Did, yeah. did that change the way that you interacted with people at the track? Maybe, um, you know, spectators, people that seen you race and they wanted to check out the car and ask you questions. I've always been pretty open and always been open to talking about it. So maybe that, that part's come a little bit natural to me. Yeah. Um, I, it's weird. It's like I'm competitive, but I'm not like, but not, but I want, I, I don't want to, I want to compete with everybody at their, their maximum effort. Yeah, got you. Right. So I don't want to win because somebody broke yeah. and I don't want to win because they didn't know about this special secret in the rules that only I know. So I have this competitive advantage. I want to win because we thought of better things and we did the thing better and like 
and and uh like just straight up beat them you know yeah yeah no that that's and, definitely uh, a healthy way to look at it yeah because then it makes you feel a lot better when you when you get that win you know if you get that win against somebody that's uh handicapped in some sort of way it doesn't feel that good well so and that's part of it and secondly if you really understand what the way i look at competition is if your competitive edge is the secret mm -hmm. when it's not a secret anymore are you going to still be able to win very true and if you don't have a fundamental understanding on how to make your car quick or how to make the car reliable or whatever it is, then you probably it's going to be hard to have endurance and continue to be successful. But if you have a fundamental understanding, then you can continue to apply that understanding over and over again to continue to have success over and over again. Got you. Now, was AEM one of your first sponsors? They were, yeah. So our first sponsor was uh, Greddy Performance Products, gotcha. uh, DVS Shoe Company. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So uh, the guy from DVS Shoe yeah. knew there was a crossover between the kids in the import scene and like the skate scene. Oh shit! Like we were we were buying like surf skate clothing yeah. already, right? We weren't wearing uh, football jerseys. Yeah. Right? I mean, some of the guys were, but um, but we were like crossover the you know surf skate because they were the there was like the jocks and then there was like surf skate like alternate like X Games sort of thing. There wasn't X Games yet, yeah. but it was like al alternative uh, athletics. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, definitely. There's traditional motorsport, and we were like this alternative <laughs> motorsport, and it, there was a there was a synergy there. And the, the marketing guy at DVS was just brilliant because he, he realized, oh my gosh, there's all these people reading these magazines and these are all potential customers of shoes. Yeah. And they're all in the demographic of kids yeah. and young, young men and even girls because they have girls stuff that would potentially buy our stuff. And they had a bigger opportunity. They, they, they just seized on it. I mean, it was just super smart. So yeah, DVS Shoe Company and then... Um, and then shortly after was AEM and uh, AEM intakes. And that's a relationship so, that you still have to this day? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great company. Great people. Um, here's Southern California based and uh, just passionate guys about motors in, into cars. Yeah. And um, uh, just good people to be around. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely, man. That's, that's actually where we met uh, a few years back when you did the Huffy Talk went down there and had lunch with you guys over there and uh john set it up great guy man yeah um so it's crazy dude because right now everybody who sponsors the uh like a race car or something like that these are companies that are in in the the racing community so they're just feeding back into the community right but you look back at maybe you know the late 90s early 2000s and you had so many crossovers like you were saying like dvs you would see kicker you would see so many other sponsors do you feel like there's any way for us to get that back into the community um i think you do see some of it like in the drifting we work with uh, rockstar energy yeah. drink uh you see um i mean gum out and stuff like that is 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 automotive based uh but um uh I, I don't know man like at that moment i mean the scene is pretty big but at that moment it was when the fast and furious came out and 
it was just it was insanity yeah. going on with you know nationwide with with street racings popping up all over the place and different drag racings popping up all over the place and hot and port nights all over the place yeah. and gotcha. uh that scene just had this just huge surge um the import model thing and uh and it was just it was just a thing it was a perfect storm <laughs> that was yeah it was and those the companies you know knew that's where a lot of young generation was was uh where was at gotcha. and they had opportunity to market there because they could sponsor things like Hot Import Nights or get into the magazines and things like that. I feel like there's a bit less opportunity nowadays. There's a bit less shows. Um, there's very little magazines left. And uh, I don't know, it's just a little bit different nowadays. Yeah. yeah, I think it would be more on like the in influencer kind of line of things. Um, right. And, and, you know, I guess you could, you know, a similar sort of thing happened with uh, X Games mm. and like freestyle motocross and skateboarding and BMX, like it had a giant surge around that time as well, right? Yeah. And uh, and I don't even know if X Games is around anymore, nah, but I'm it's it's sure. changed a bit, right? But now, yeah. I, but but what's happened is there's snowboarding and uh, and some of these other X Games sports in the real Olympics. Yeah. So it's crazy how that actually it jumped all the way into total mainstream uh, global. Yeah, I think this year um, at the Olympics that was supposed to happen this year, they were going to introduce skateboarding. But And surf, I think, as well. Really? I, I feel like there was something with surf. But they were supposed to have skateboarding, really. Yeah, skateboarding. Wow. Okay, yeah. well, there you go. So yeah. maybe we could see uh, Honda racing one day in the Olympics. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, you know, the, the crossover there would be – well. You know, Formula Drift uh, has done a really good job of, as being a premier motorsport series. Yeah. And it's up there. I mean, it's not as big as Supercross and NHRA and stuff, but it's a real series with real stops and consistent huge sellout crowds and a really strong live stream that's one of the strongest live streams of any motorsport yeah. event. So, um, I, I mean, there's, you know, that's a series that's definitely here to stay. And has and has made its mark. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of things that I look towards Formula Drift, and that I wish it was in uh, in our scene. But um, it's going to take those people, those pioneers, to make that that stuff happen. You know. Now, before we get out of uh, the Honda drag racing, have you kept an eye on what's going on to this day with the community? I mean, you just mean like uh, as far as records and numbers uh, and things like that. The what? Uh, as far as like records and numbers and things. A little bit. Like I'm buddies with Jeremy Lukowski gotcha. that races front wheel drive. And then I hear about Norris and and like the U.S. with you uh, import versus domestic events and stuff. Yeah. And um, a, a little bit. And, and it's really crazy how fast the real wheel drive cars with like the two JZ engines are running into the fives and yeah. front wheel drives into the sevens, running four wheel drive setups. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, and my understanding is those events, especially the ones on the East Coast, are as big, if not bigger, than they ever have been. Yeah. So it is really strong, and and you, you know you hear about people building import cars or you know these old Hondas and old Toyotas and Supras and eighty sixes and all this stuff, you know, all over the world, and and you know, and now you've got guys that are older that have teenage kids that grew up 
in the tuner scene. Yeah. Now their kids are, you know, wanting to build these sport compact cars um, more so than maybe Mustangs and stuff. So it, it's it's become mainstream, I think. Yeah, definitely, yeah. man. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Like you said, the all-wheel drive stuff um, and then the all-motor class as well. I'm pretty sure that they're pretty deep into the, the eights already um, with just all-motor, which is insane. But um, I want to talk about your exit from the uh, the drag racing and then moving over into drifting. What was the thing that made you think that this was a... Uh, this ship has run its course. Well, you know, by the time 2005 came around, I had already been drag racing for over 10 years and traveling, you know, to all these different drag racing tracks. And and it was fun building the cars, but after a while it was like, and it was fun driving the cars, but after a while it's like I keep traveling and I show up and it's another straight quarter mile yeah. asphalt. Like, and, 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 uh, I wanted to just do something different and it felt like, okay, I'm getting a little bit older. I mean, I was probably 25 or something like that or whatever it was. And, uh, and had like dreams of, oh, if I did this well at drag racing, I could go do road racing and I could do another career doing that. So I started, you know, working on trying to achieve, uh, you know, I got a shifter car and tried to learn how to road race and, and realized, oh man, this is, this is harder than I thought. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I go out there and get smoked by like the nine year old kid that's already <laughs> been doing it for four years. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe I don't need to, you know, give up on what I've been doing. But right at that same time, there was the drifting stuff. And I was like, okay, the cars are relatively inexpensive to build. There's a lot of events happening in Southern California that was relatively close. And it was kind of a mix with between drag racing and road racing because there was a start and there was a finish yeah. and the, the laps were, you know, 20 or 30 seconds. Um, and uh, it was I always had fun, you know, counter steering cars. Yeah. Getting sideways. So I was like, OK, well, the sport is young enough and uh, I think I could build a car. And so let me try to learn how to drift. Maybe I can do it, and it turned out to be harder than I thought. Mm -hmm. I can get around the track, and I got a D1 license and Rookie of the Year in Formula Drift in 2000, uh, in 2005. Um, but I wasn't near the skill level of as the guys at the top, and I wasn't. I guess I wasn't willing to put in the effort yeah. to continue to to learn all that stuff again, or maybe I just didn't have the time and and uh, or the or the, even the skill to do it, um, but realized we could build good cars. Mm -hmm. And in 2006, realized we could spend the same amount of money that we were spending on the drag program and take that same amount of money that we're spending in 2005 and in 2006 do a two-car mm. drift program. So I was like, okay, I'll be in the B car. And then, uh, and then we hired, we worked with Tanner Faust to be in the A car. Because he was a you know really skilled driver, but he was having trouble getting a, a good competitive car. Gotcha. I was like, look, man, I'll build you a good car, and then you drive it. You might be the A driver, and I'll be the the B driver. You know, we'll have a two car team, and and uh, and that worked out really well for a few years. Um, my focus was really on building the car and competition and running the team, and didn't really spend much time trying to learn how to drift. Gotcha. I would kind of go from an event and 
not do that great and then park the car for a while until the next event and then drive the car in the next event. And of course, I'm not going to be any better than the previous event because I never practiced in between. Yeah. Uh, but we were really focusing on having Tanner do well. Mm -hmm. And he got third in the championship that first year. He won the championship the next two years. Wow. Yeah. And, I'll, and then we started working with Scion uh, in the fourth year. And I'm like, all right, maybe I should give up the driving and just focus <laughs> on, you know, the team side and running the program and dealing with sponsors and stuff like that. I, uh, that seems to be more of my forte or at least more of what I've been enjoy doing. Yeah. And for so many years with all the drag racing, I was, you know, in magazines and signing stuff and, and, you know, meeting people and I was just kind of burnt out on that too. Yeah. And Tanner was becoming really popular at that time. So I'm like, you be the guy Tanner. I'll be in the back. I'll work on the car. We'll deal with like, you know, the mechanic side of yeah. it and you could be the famous guy, you know? Yeah. And, uh, that was good. It was, it was fine. Um, and then, uh, he retired a few years later and then we brought in Frederick Osbo in 2011 and, uh, continued with Scion, built a new car for Frederick and he was rookie of the year the year before and took a couple years for him to get up in speed, but I think he was like eighth in the championship and then like sixth and then fourth and then eventually won it. And then, you know, second a bunch of times and now he's the winningest uh, Formula Drift driver. And um, that, was, that was, yeah, that's been really fun. And, and, and uh, we've had the opportunity, really fortunate opportunity to work with Cyan and Toyota and they kind of keep coming out with new cars and we've had the opportunity to build these cars into these crazy drift cars, which is something that I really love to do. Very cool, man. So you're, you're still feeling the passion for the, the drifting and the, having the team. Yeah, for sure. Especially like, you know, we got an opportunity to build a brand new Supra and then build an engine that no one's really built before and have that sort of challenge. So that's all reinvigorated me uh, in the building process. Um, and that's, that's where I really love our scene. I love, really love, love the drift because it's a really thin rule book and we can do so much in the cars and the people and everything are really diverse yeah. versus like IndyCar or something like, you know, a lot of these cars that are very similar. Yeah. They almost like, they all have really similar chassis and the rule book is really thick and there's not a lot of stuff that you can do. And it's really hard for the, the cars to really set themselves apart. So I'll watch NASCAR and I'll follow some of the teams on on NASCAR and they never talk about the technical stuff. They never pop the engine and show the cool stuff that I care about. Yeah. They're showing they're debuting their new livery and the new decals. And you know, it's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't care, man. Or the driver is talking about the other driver and F that guy. Yeah. Cause he cut me off. He put me in the wall. It's like, dude, I don't care at all about that. If you guys tell me about the engines and the new modifications that you did to the engines and maybe the difference between like a super speedway car and a, and a short track car and show me the different parts. And that's when I start getting really into it. Um, but uh, I've had a challenge finding that information or the, the teams really typically don't even show that. Yeah. You know, I've been to the, the NASCAR events and I brought a camera and it was kind of looking around and you can kind of see some stuff, but, and you get a little bit too close and they're like, no, 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 you can't look at this. It's like, all right, well, I guess there's nothing for me here at the racetrack then because <laughs> I'm not interested in seeing him go around in circles yeah. and you guys won't show me, let me see up close in the car. So I'm not into this type of motorsport. Yeah. So yeah. you, you, uh, you're being the change that you want to see. Exactly. 
Right. I love it. That's 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 the thing is, you know, I, I see what I want to be like and I see what I don't want to be like. And then it, it forms, uh, you know, it, it forms the choices that I make. Got you. So let's go ahead and fast forward to present day and the uh, the the Supra that you're working on. Um, what was it like tearing apart a brand new Supra and getting down to the uh, the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah, that's fun. I mean, we've torn down a lot of new brand new cars yeah. for years. Like that's kind of been our thing. Um, but never like a brand new $60,000 car. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was, it was fun getting in there and seeing how they design it and seeing all the different aluminum parts. Um, it was crazy as we took this thing apart and we had the car sitting there on jack stands and you know, the car is like maybe eight feet wide by like 12 feet long or whatever. Yeah. But there was like, that amount of like area, like times three was all of the components we pulled out of it. Like there's an engine and transmission and roof liners and weather stripping and interior panels and suspension and hatch and hood. Like when you take apart a part of an entire car, it's everywhere. Yeah. There's so much stuff inside of a car, you know, three or 4,000 pounds worth of stuff. So, uh, that was kind of pretty exciting to, you know, it's just that car has so much and there's so much engineering in this thing. Like everything on it, you're like, oh my God, this must have taken a team of engineers. Yeah. Do this part that you just never even see. Um, and uh, you really start appreciating the amount of R&D and manufacturing that goes into a, a streetcar, whether it's a Corolla or a Supra. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing the amount of engineering that goes into something like that. Um, yeah, so that... That was exciting doing that, but it, it was really a lot of pressure. Yeah. So, you know, we were building this car in secret and uh, we, you know, started the whole project in secret. And then we had this ambitious goal of trying to, you know, make a thousand horsepower out of that factory engine where no one had done that before. And we kind of signed up and claimed that, okay, we're going to try to do it, but we didn't even know if it could be done. Yeah kind of put ourselves out there, um, you know, we could succeed or we could fail, but it's like, oh, whatever. It's an exciting story. Let's, let's just go with it. If we fail, at least we'll, <laughs> it, hopefully we make it an exciting story. Yeah. But fortunately we were able to get to what we wanted, the goal we had. And, uh, and then, yeah, the rest is history. Like now we're kind of, you know, building, now we've built the car and, and now once the, the form of the drift season starts back up, uh, we'll be competing with it. Very cool, man. I love it. One thing that I really love about the way that you do content is, um, you know, you, you're very detailed and of course you're going to run into something with a new build that there's not a, there's not an application. There's not a, a flange or something for it. And then you just go build it yourself. I think that is so awesome, man. Yeah. That's been a dream. I remember when I would first work on cars and okay, I need this thing to fit to this, but they don't pull together. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can't use them anymore. <laughs> and, uh, or I can't use it. And I remember watching, you know, seeing pictures of like rally cars and like the old group B stuff, like some of these old cars and even some of the, the drag race cars and you, you, the high end drag racing cars of uh, traditional drag racing cars, you'd see like all of these custom fabricated or, um, machined parts. And I was like, oh, man, that'd be so cool to be able to make that stuff. But I didn't know how to design it or how to do anything. So every kind of every year I would try to have a new goal on what I would learn. 
right? So we'd have, uh, when I worked out of AEM shop, they had a, a lathe, yeah. just a manual lathe. So one of the guys, I was like, you got to teach me how to use it so I could, you know, turn down round things yeah. into smaller round things. And then uh, eventually they had a mill, so I learned how to use the mill. Oh, wow. And so you can kind of use coordinate system. And, and so I watched a bunch of videos on how to, I found old DVDs on how to, how to use a mill and how to use a lathe. And so I watched those and even read books. Yeah. And now it was time for the internet, right? So then I'd go on the internet and read like forums and, and, and talk to whoever I could on how to use it. And then uh, you kind of learn the terminology on how the coordinate system works on a lathe or whatever. And I'd see a print from like the guys at AEM and I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll draw that. So I need to make this part. So it's a square yeah. and it's two inches by two inches and I draw that. I need a, a, a hole here and that hole ends like at one inch from this edge and one inch from this edge. And you kind of have this really crude drawing of what it is that you want to make. And then you go to the machine and you make it. And that's the beginning of learning how to uh, computer design. So now I used to do the sketches, so I'd still do sketches, and now you go into the computer and you say, okay, I'm gonna build this, but virtually. Yeah. And then once you get that virtual part, then you find somebody to make it. Eventually I was like, oh, I wanna try to make it myself. So then I watch YouTube videos on how to, you know, use this, how to program CNC machines, then I got the software, and then I bought a machine, and then I learned how to do the machine. And uh, a bit of it was like ready, I say this a bit now, you know, I'm realizing it's like, instead of ready, aim, fire, it's ready, fire, aim. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, you know, and it's expensive sometimes. Like, I was like, I want to learn how to machine. But I can't just go get a job at a machine shop. Yeah. So I bought a, the cheapest, in, most inexpensive CNC machine that I could find that worked. Yeah. And then I had a couple of friends that were machinists. I was like, you got to give me some tips on how to do this. So he'd give me some tips. I'd read some books. I'd watch some YouTube videos. And I'm like, okay. And I'd read the whole service manual on how, to, how the machine works. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I guess we're turning this on. And we're going to try to move it here. And then just start with baby steps and eventually um, spend enough time and ask enough questions. And now I know how to run a CNC machine. Did you ever crash it? Uh, not to where I broke the machine, but where I've broken tools. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Got you. And... Um, <laughs> And it's just part, it's not, it's, you know, it's not if you're going to crash it, it's wind. Yeah. You just, you just want to do it in a way that it's, you don't, you don't break the thing. Yeah. Um, so because I had some of, you know, you get warned of these pitfalls, like watch out for these things, like never run it on rapid. You always run the program on really slow yeah. and you have to hand on the stop button so if you see something that you're not sure, you hit stop <laughs> yeah. before it crashes. So you just have to, if you if you put some of those, if you're paranoid enough and you put some of those uh, safety precautions into place, the likelihood of crashing it comes way down. Because it's not like every machinist goes in there and fucking ruins a machine, yeah. right? You wouldn't be able to, you, know, you can't afford that. Yeah. Um, but there's machinists before us that have made these mistakes that are like, don't make these mistakes. So you just have to listen mm -hmm. and take all that advice and, and use that advice. I love it, man. So, um, I mean, obviously a lot of people listening, they know you from, you know, your, your Honda community and then from, uh, from formula drift, but there is also a large number of people who are just finding out about you from the super build via mm -hmm. your YouTube channel. So what was your motivation in doing the YouTube channel and how do you feel that it's going? Yeah, the motivation was uh, that, you know, our, 
we, you know, at first there were magazines and then there was like websites and DVDs and then there was forums that would people would kind of find out their information. And then, you know, as that kind of stuff kind of withered away, you know, now, now it's mostly social media. Yeah. And Tanner Faust had a big social media following and then Frederick Oswell really grew his and you see other people in the sport, especially in the world of drift and stuff that have good followings that do more than just drift, you know, they're actually personalities and they do cool, other cool shows and stuff. And, um, I was like, okay, well nowadays, you know, you know, we can't before we'd build a cool car and then, you know, a magazine would profile it. Mm -hmm. People would find out about it. But nowadays there's very little of that. So it's really up to the teams to promote what we're doing. Yeah. So, you know, started getting a little bit more interested in like my Instagram and Facebook and, uh, and YouTube was just one of those platforms where I was like, okay, well, I think YouTube is here to stay. Yeah. And if I do content for Instagram or if I do content on Facebook, it ends up in some timeline and it just gets cycled off and no one ever sees it again. It's just kind of gone to the black hole of, I don't even, you know, content, <laughs> you're just gone. Right. <laughs> Uh, but I always remember looking to learn how to do stuff on YouTube and I would find stuff that was three years old and five years old and, you know, sometimes new and sometimes old, but it still lived there. Yeah. And I was like, I feel like that's a better place to create content for because it lives, it has a much longer life. So, um, I practiced a lot building, doing like 30 second to one minute videos on Instagram. Okay. So I'd film and I'd edit it, maybe put some music or whatever. And then I did a bunch of those on Instagram and try to get better at editing. And then I, as I was doing that, I was watching a bunch of other stuff on YouTube on how to film better, how to edit better. And the guys and girls that film YouTube videos on how to use a camera yeah. or how to properly film something or how to edit, those are usually aspiring filmmakers. And they know how to put an entire video together with like a beginning and a middle and an end. And then I started taking that advice on how to just put a good video together, a good YouTube video. And I just applied that format to uh, the car stuff that we were doing. So you're editing yourself. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Not not everything nowadays. Yeah. But like most of like most of the stuff, like all the engine build, all the engine build series, I filmed and edited myself through Final Cut. Um, uh yeah final cut pro very cool. yeah my buddies oh, yeah. all telling me i should use premiere but but um i had an older macbook air like 2014 and you know the final cut pro worked pretty well on yeah. there even with 4k and everybody i know with premiere is like no you have to have a pretty robust uh video cards and gotcha. it's hard to do 4k on a laptop and i was like i don't want to deal with any of that like let me just because i started with iMovie yeah yeah yeah, yeah. pretty quickly I ran out of like the li I there was limited the I could do with the iMovie and I'm like okay now I got to spend three or four hundred dollars on yeah. Final Cut Pro, but for three or four hundred dollars like I own the program and I still only spent that three or four hundred dollars three hundred dollars or whatever it was six years ago I never spent another dollar on Final Cut Pro yeah. I own it now whenever I get a new laptop I just okay here's my code or whatever it's worth and I it just it just worked yeah so worth it um and it's super powerful you could do color and audio and all these different things. Um, so love that program, but, uh, yeah, man. So like 
watching the videos and then I started reading books on, you know, how people make movies. And I, and I, I rent, I did a couple of those like master classes oh, okay. on, uh, on, uh, making movies. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so, you know, obviously it doesn't all apply, yeah. but if I watched this thing for, let's say three or four hours over the period of a few weeks, like, a, you know, 20 or 30 minutes a night before I go to sleep, if I, you, it's $80 I spent for this class. And a couple of things I may learn is going to be huge for the skills that we have in production. And I'm not going back to – I can't go to film school. <laughs> Even if I did, that would be so much money and time. Like I, I can't see – but there's so many resources online that it really helps. So there's a couple of things like, okay, so I'm starting the, my video. Like where are we? Yeah. We're at Papadakis Racing. Let's do a, a wide shot and show the whole shop so the viewer understands – you know, where are we? Where is this whole thing taking place? Okay, what are we going to do today? Let's get into it. I don't want to hear about what you ate for lunch and what the weather is outside. Like, just let's get into it. Yeah. So this is our engine, and this is the valve cover, and we're going to pull the valve cover off. And you, you just kind of move through it. So there's a beginning, what we're, we're where we are and why we're doing it, and you kind of get into, you know, get into the, you know, whatever the video is. And at the end, hopefully, you've achieved something. Yeah. And the viewer has felt like, okay, now we actually went on a journey and now we've reached the end of this segment and maybe it, you know, it leads into the next video. Yeah. You know what I really like about one of your recent videos is the way that you were able to, uh, I'm assuming it's a sponsor, the speaker, uh, how you, oh, yeah. how you were able to put that in, dude, that was so smooth, bro. That was yeah, perfect. that was, you know, we, we haven't, I haven't had any sponsored content really on there. I mean, we work with Toyota. Yeah. So, um, but that's pretty obvious, right? Uh, but, uh, the speaker guys were like, look, man, I really want you to work with us. Um, and if anybody, it's Cove audio and, and he, I was like, nah, I don't really do that. I don't really, we, you know, we just, we don't do ads, you know? Yeah. And, um, he's like, let me just send you a speaker. So he sent me a speaker and I, I was using it at the shop for like a couple of months. And he actually sent me two, one I used and then one I gave to Aldo and he brought it camping out. How was that thing? He's like, I liked it. He's like, it was freaking badass. And then the guy from the speaker emailed us back. He's like, hey man, I got this new one. So he sent that out. So we said, now we had a couple of speakers. So I was like, this one's pretty cool too. And and finally I was like, look man, okay, fine. Let, let's do something. I like the product and I'm down to promote it. Um, so we made a deal to integrate it into one of the videos and, uh, and I don't know if I'm going to do more of those gotcha. with different companies. I may, uh, but it has to be products that I, I, I literally use. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. It was, it was a smooth transition for sure. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's so cool how you're explaining all this stuff from the beginning until present day of how you look at, uh, things that you want to attack how you plan it, and then how you actually just do it. And a lot of it seems like, you know, you just just go out and do it. You know, see wherever you could get the knowledge from, learn about it, and then uh, just go for it, man. And I, I think that's a very big skill that a lot of people um, are lacking to this day. And it's not one that they don't have. I mean, it's it doesn't take much to just go do it, you know? Yeah, my biggest advice when people ask me, like, how do I learn to work on cars? It's like, get a car and work on it. So if you've got five grand to work on a car or five grand for your a car or a project, don't buy a $5,000 car. Buy a $2,500 car and spend $1,000 on it and spend another $1,000 on tools. And instead of going to school, you're going to learn how to 
make mistakes and break your own car and then gain, gain experience from that. Um, and you can apply that theory, I think, wherever. And the same thing when I went to go machining, you know, I didn't buy the most expensive machine I could buy, I bought the, the least expensive machine that I could find and spent money on tooling and, and uh, you know, invested time into learning how to do it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if there's any takeaways from what we've been talking about today would be, um, I don't, nowadays, I don't think, I think school, I think there's a place for school. And that one of actually one of my biggest regrets in life is not uh, going to engineering school and uh, and getting a mechanical engineering degree. Um, but I wouldn't trade the experience I have for a degree. Yeah. And and that's the the calculus. Maybe you kind of have to to you know one has to find within themselves is like what's better, the experience or the degree, and what I'm going to learn from the school. Um, ideally, you have both. Right, you really want a a a, a, found, a foundation of real school and real uh, academic school, and and being able to wake up every day and complete projects and stuff like that, and then add um, add experience on top of that. I have some brilliant friends that have that combination, uh, and then I, those those are my mentors. Yeah, guys that are really experienced, but also have like an actual real education. Uh, an engineering education, <clears throat> and uh, those are the guys that'll ask. Those are the guys that have, t that have taught me a lot. So I love it, yeah. man. So lastly, what do we have to expect um, from the rest of 2020, maybe even 2021, from uh, from yourself and Pop Doc is racing? Yeah. So uh, I mean, the big news right now is you know, and the the big excitement for us is is debuting the 2020 Supra getting that on the track and that's going to be a challenge because it's a relatively new car, new engine. So we'll be evolving that, you know, throughout the rest of this year and even into next. Um, and then we're working with Ryan Turek. So Ryan Turek's driving uh, a Toyota Corolla with us. Mm. So um, uh, he'll continue. So he's going to continue, you know, with the car that we've been racing with, with Freddie, but we're tuning that up for his driving style. So that's, that's, that's it, man. Like, uh, just really focusing on uh, the competition end of it, and um, and then continuing to make content on YouTube. I don't know what the next project is we're gonna do, but I've got a couple of teardown videos. I've got one that I've already filmed where I pull apart uh, fuel pumps, gotcha. different fuel pumps, and see how they work inside. And it's really interesting because like the fuel actually flows through all of the electric motor and everything, and it doesn't shorten anything out um, because gasoline and the, the fuels don't conduct gotcha, electricity. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Uh, but it's really fun to see inside of it because and, and that's I want to keep doing that like you know when you look at this fuel pump do you know how it works I don't know I put power on it and fuel comes in and out but I don't know what's inside yeah. but I think a lot of people are interested in let's take it apart and we'll learn what these things are called and learn how it works so I'm going to keep coming out up with uh, videos like that very cool and you have an up up upload coming on Tuesday yeah yeah so uh, Tuesday we have a um, a video where it, it, it's quite different. So it's a, more of a produced video where I'm bored in the shop and I cut out and make this little paper, uh, paper car, origami sort of car yeah. that looks just like our Supra. And then another one that looks like Ryan Turk's Corolla. And then I get up to go to the bathroom and the thing burns out and it's a full stop motion video where it's drifting around all these obstacles inside the shop. No way. 
<laughs> yeah, so it's a stop. It's a stop motion video, <laughs> and it has like real car sounds on it, and uh, it was just something fun to do. Yeah. While we were um, locked down the last, uh, you know, month or so here. Yeah. So something that we could film in the shop and um, and not need to go to a racetrack or something to do it. Dude, I love it, man. So where can people watch these videos at? So that'll be on the Papadakis Racing YouTube channel. Okay. So uh, just. Google search Papadakis Racing, our YouTube channel will probably come up, but the ch the channel is youtube.com slash Papadakis Racing. Perfect. We'll have it below, man. Uh, Stefan, I want to tell you thank you for everything yep. that you've done. Thank you for spending this time here with us, and uh, hopefully we cross paths soon, and we can do this in the future in person. Sounds good. Yeah. Awesome, man. Right, so um, thank you guys, everybody, for listening. Big thank you to our sponsor, Heel Toe Automotive. Uh, been around since 2002, supplying you guys with your Honda parts, man. Make sure you guys check them out, uh, heeltoeauto.com. And um, thank you guys for listening. Downtime with Downsar, episode 169, and we're out. Peace.